gestation is this time of nothingness. It's this void time between our becomings. And that if we can give ourselves permission for that, then we have a pause. You know, we have this kind of break in the timeline. We have a little death where we're neither one thing nor another. And for me personally, that, that space is relief. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Welcome, sisters, to the Time of the Feminine podcast. I have a very special guest here today. Her name is Maya Toll, and she is the award-winning author of the Wild Wisdom series. It has inspired readers worldwide to explore their human nature through the magical lens that we have all around us. The seeds for this series were planted when Maya apprenticed with a traditional healer in Ireland, and she spent many years studying the growing cycles of plants, the alchemy of medicine, and the psycho-spiritual aspects of healing. In her latest endeavors, she is an author of The Night School, and she explores the edge of the universe and the depths of the self, all through the lens of philosophy, divination, and astrology. She also owns an herb shop called Herbiary, with locations in Asheville, Philadelphia, and online. She lives in Asheville, North Carolina with her partner and her two very cute spoiled dogs. And one more note is that she has a memoir coming out this June. It's called Letting Magic In. So in year 2023, be on the lookout for this book, Letting Magic In. And this is a story of her life. And so today on this podcast, I hope to kind of get a little bit of a taste of this memoir that she's written that is in its final stages at this very moment. And so Maya, it is such an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Shana. I'm thrilled to be here. So Maya, this podcast is called The Time of the Feminine. And so we like to ask our guests, what does the time of the feminine mean to you? Mm. I actually really love this title. I know in your byline or your tagline, you know, it says something about the patriarchy. And I love the focus on the feminine. Let's focus on what we're looking for instead of what we're pushing against, right? And like one thing that I've noticed with the word patriarchy is it's getting like slung around in such a way that it almost means nothing anymore. It's like, oh yeah, that's the patriarchy. And and in some ways, I, I almost feel like it's like, letting um, bad behavior off the hook instead of being like this very specific thing is bad behavior. It just gets labeled the patriarchy and it's this like big umbrella term and we're not being specific. And so 
by focusing on the feminine and what we want to call in. Not this amorphous thing we're like pushing against, but this sense of being able to turn inward when we need to, to examine our own inner worlds, to have an inner life and to allow from that place to step into empathy and connection. That to me is the gist of what we want and so much more vital and nourishing than the pushing against what we don't want. I hear you there. And it's such an interesting conversation. Lauren and I have explored this a lot because we teach about the patriarchy and our understanding of this very broad topic to get people to stop pointing the fingers out and really stop doing that and to start examining in because this is something that's affected all of us basically worldwide if you're connected to the Western world and uh, this modern framework. And so for us at the Global Sisterhood, we're looking within and where do these systems like really impact us. And I think what you said about going inward, like that is the work of the feminine. It's descending into the body, bringing awareness to all of our parts. And so I want to ask you about this process of writing a memoir. Like that to me is the downward arrow, <laughs> probably <laughs> its finest. <laughs> what has that been like for you? And maybe you can share a little bit about, yeah, the journey. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is, I think of this time of year, autumn, as the, the descent, right? We have less and less light, less and less young energy out in the world. And so we're slowly, just like the plants and the trees and the world around us, kind of turning inward and grounding down into our roots. And writing a memoir is that process amplified. It took me a year to get 70,000 good words, which, you know, just to give people a sense, like a normal blog post is between 800 and 2,000 words. You know, and if you've ever tossed one of those off. Usually you can write that in a couple of hours. So like to take a whole year to write 70,000 words is grueling. <laughs> it is an intense inward focus. But what's interesting about it is you're focused inward, but you're presenting outward. You know, if, if all I do is turn inward and kind of spew my inner thoughts and <laughs> feelings and garbage, that doesn't necessarily communicate. Mm -hmm. It reminds me like, okay, I've used this in other contexts, but I think it also works in memoir. If you're not like writing to communicate with an audience, it's the same as masturbation. It's great. feels good. You can have an orgasm, but it's not a connection with anybody else. It's a connection with yourself, right? And so that's what that is, is journaling. And we all do that from time to time, we pick up a pen and we scroll down our thoughts for ourselves. But writing a memoir is this like incredible, like it's, it's the full circle of the wheel. It's the going inward and dredging up what needs dredging, but then you have to alchemize it and filter through it and sort it and figure out what you can then put on a platter and hand to somebody else and have them get some nourishment from what you lived through. And I think that that process, it's, it's a personal myth-making. 
it elevates your own life experience for yourself. Like, you know, once you filter through and refine and craft, you begin to see your own life differently. Wow. So I imagine that it's a profoundly healing process too. What I would say, you know, again, I feel like the word healing, we use it like we use the word patriarchy, like what does it even mean anymore? I would say that it is a choosing how to come into wholeness. And I say choosing because there are so many threads that you can pull to tell your own story. And you're sifting through all of those threads and you're saying to yourself, what forms a pattern that is enlightening, you know, to me about what I lived through, and then therefore hopefully is enlightening to somebody else. And there's a choice to let certain things fall away. And I think that that is part of healing. I think that that is part of coming into wholeness. And kind of, isn't that interesting that to come into wholeness, we have to let go of some things. We have to lose some things. I think one of the things that we think in our kind of hubris and ego of youth is every single thing I have ever thought, felt, seen, heard, smelled, decided is important. You know, I remember like when I was younger insisting that I need to be seen wholly. If my family didn't understand every single nuanced thought and feeling, if my partner didn't, then they didn't love me enough. And What I've realized as I've gotten older is how quickly my own thoughts and feelings change. And if I'm demanding that someone see and acknowledge each one as it flows through my head, I mean, talk about ego, talk about exhausting, you know, for everyone involved. So there is this like crafting that happens with the memoir process, this kind of being like, oh, I can now see the evolution from a distance from time of that thought. And it ended up kind of being a dead end. And I let that one go. It's not actually a part of me. It's not part of my wholeness. So that's been a really interesting process. Because there's a lot of things that, like, I forgot that I felt or thought. And I revisited them. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was deeply committed to that concept. And it did not work out. (laughs) And that's okay. It's fascinating to hear. And I understand the change of the word healing, because in a way it feels like what you're doing is weaving. Like you're talking about wholeness. You're taking these these different parts of yourself that maybe, we were talking about this before the podcast, but this almost different incarnation of yourself and then bringing these pieces together and weaving this tapestry that is your story. It's not necessarily even who you are in a way, because that's ego because those pieces have fallen away, but it's making sense of the different life experiences and the passages that you've had to walk through. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. It's really threading them together. So weaving is not only a perfect analogy, uh, it's one I use throughout the book. I um, It was pointed out to me early on by one of the women in my writing group, a uh, memoirist named Steph Jagger, who said, you know, This feels like spider medicine. This has that quality of weaving. And so 
I got really curious about spider webs, about how they are, how they're made. I mean, we use them as a symbol and I realized I'd never really investigated how a spider spins a web. And it's fascinating. Um, they have different glands that produce different silks within their body and they can produce up to seven different kinds of silk. And then when they start weaving, what they do is they, they attach a silk to the place where they're standing. I am here. And then they throw it out into the world, into the wind and see what it catches on and where it lands. And that becomes the guide thread. And from there, they walk themselves to the middle and drop a line to the ground. And those three points are the points from which the rest of the web is spun. I recently heard that if you were to break a spider's web, that it's actually connected somewhere in their memory. Oh, wow. And so you're pulling something from them in that process of, of breaking it because it's connected to their consciousness. Spiders are fascinating and beautiful. I love spiders. I know a lot of people have trouble with them, but I encourage you to really think about their webs and their weavings and their beauty because they have so much to offer us as humans. Yeah, I, I think that the metaphors that come through spider are absolutely amazing. You know, even what they do with the web on the far side. And this is, this is fascinating too, because if you weave in what you just said, Shana, about how the web is connected to their memory, when they dismantle a web, they um, ingest it so that they take those proteins from the silk back in to spin the new web. And so if you think of those proteins as memory, they're ingesting their own memories to spin the next incarnation, which brings me back to what we were talking about before the, we started recording, right? Where we were talking about this idea that like maybe reincarnation happens in one lifetime. Maybe in one lifetime, you're re-spinning your web multiple times, but with the memory of the old thread. It almost seems like a full circle picture of what integration actually looks like. It's like you've cast the web, you've created this security almost for yourself because it's right how they, how they get food, but it's also this creative aspect of them and trust in the universe. And then when it's complete, they, they take it all in and everything that came with it too, which is in our modern culture, this thing we don't get to fully do this often, but to integrate the life experience and to be with it. And so we were talking about it before this podcast, this idea of gestation. And so maybe you can share a little bit about the creative process and gestation and how you feel it resonates for you, like how this process has helped you, but also maybe encouraging others to examine this process in their own life. Yeah. So for me, the idea of gestation really goes back to how I see the year. And if like, I'm going to talk about this a little bit now, but if you're curious, the book that I wrote about this in is called The Wild Wisdom Companion, and it focuses on the will of the year. When I was 33, I was lucky enough to be able to kind of leave my current life and go to Ireland and apprentice with um, a healer there. And so I was fully immersed in 
the modernized version of ancient Celtic ways. I don't want to say they're ancient Celtic ways because, you know, everything gets tossed and turned and changed around and remade for the modern world. I don't have any Irish in my lineage. So this was not like a lineage journey. This was a heart journey, you know, a spirit journey. And one of the things that just really resonated deeply with me is the idea that the year ends at Samhain, which is what we call Halloween, which by the way, if you want to like dive deeper, the original Samhain had to do with when certain stars and constellations appeared in the sky in a particular way. So like calling it Halloween is is super loosey-goosey and it kind of works. But I always say to people who say like, I don't know, the veil is supposed to be thin. It doesn't feel thin yet. I'm like, well, it might not be thin yet because the stars might not be aligned correctly yet. So always trust your feelings. If you're kind of like, I'm not feeling that thinning of the veil yet, then it probably hasn't thinned yet. And you can give it another couple of weeks. But in older Celtic culture, the year ended at Samhain. And there's something about this that I, I really loved. And maybe it is kind of a resonance of heritage because my family is Jewish and the Jewish New Year's is also in the autumn. But if you were following a, a farming cycle, once you brought in the harvest, you were kind of done for the year. And my teacher used to say, we have to get everything in that we want to get in by October 31st or, you know, whenever Samhain actually was, because the fairies piss on everything after that, <laughs> which, which I think is a beautiful metaphor for remembering that, like, there's a world beyond us humans and there are other animals and birds and fairies that need some of this harvest too. And if we harvest until every last scrap is gone, then there's nothing for anyone else. So after the harvest, there's this time between Samhain and the winter solstice. So the winter solstice is when the sun returns, right? When the young energy starts to grow. That to me, and this is my interpretation, this is not the Celtic interpretation, but I, I think I was having trouble in my head reconciling the year ending at Samhain, but it didn't feel to me like it should start again the next day. It felt like the year should start after the winter solstice. And so then there's this gap, right? <laughs> there's this gap between Samhain and the winter solstice. And I came to see that gap, that time when out in the natural world, the trees have sunk their energy all the way down in into their roots. If they've dropped nuts and things that might later become saplings, they haven't yet. They're still in their little nut pod, you know, getting buried by animals in the ground. And there's this time that is what I think of as like a universal time of gestation, where we're not even ready to think about what our next becoming is going to be. We're, we're not even in the beginning stages. We're in the void before the, be, the beginning stages. And that little slice has become such a gift. Like every year, I can't wait to get to that little pie wedge of the year because it's permission to be nothing right? Just for a short period of time to put down what you had been before you pick up what you will become. There you are in the void. 
And that to me, I think that oftentimes we think of gestation as, you know, we line it up with human birth, right? So it's the moment after that kind of spark where egg and sperm meet when something's already beginning. But I go back one tick further and say that gestation is this time of nothingness. It's this void time between our becomings. And that if we can give ourselves permission for that, then we have a pause. You know, we have this kind of break in the timeline. We have a little death where we're neither one thing nor, nor another. And for me personally, that, that space is relief because I know I have watched outside my window for long enough that all those little nuts are going to start putting out their cotyledons. They're going to start working their way above the ground and work into their blueprint of becoming a tree. We don't have to do anything. That will happen. So it's okay to just be in the void, be nothing, take that time. As you were speaking, I could just feel this expansion in my body because there's just this deep longing that I feel for deep rest and the permission. And in a way, I think that's what the pandemic gave us. <laughs> like in yes. some ways, I kind of miss it <laughs> that people were sick and all these things, but this permission to just be. And it's interesting. I'm born November 30th. And so like I am a liminal space baby. And yeah. I never thought about that period of time in the way you just described. I think it was more visceral for me this time. Like I could feel it in my body and also this longing and also my place in it. <laughs> and I think that's why there's such a deep longing is because I am of this period. I am of this yeah, and I think that's why I explore consciousness and spirituality is because there's just like this deep desire to just be nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And to have that be a blessing. I think that we so often yes. think that if we are nothing, you know, that's a curse. But what if it's a blessing? What if it's your greatest blessing? Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like. My nervous system feels like it's a blessing. I think my mind in different phases of my life would not understand. But now I see how, how I don't want to live this life with a constant strain in my nervous system. It's not, it's not how I want to present myself at the end of my life. Like I've hustled so much that here's my broken, <laughs> brittle body. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. <laughs> I want to feel like I've soaked up the earth into my bones and drink in its tonics and minerals and feel like I've been an earth being. <laughs> right. Right. Because that's that's what we are. And, you know, I know some people say that we chose this incarnation. I, I don't know that I can quite go there. You're like, where did I sign the line to do this? <laughs> yeah, where, where was that? I, I didn't have a hand. How did I do that? But I think whether, whether we like chose it or not, the essence of what we are right now is earth beings. And so 
I think that there can be a tendency in spiritual practices to try to escape the body. And what I have found for myself is that the more that I try to escape, the further I get from any real and sustainable practice. The, the body is what is the container. I can leave this container for a little while and go astral project. It's fun, but you know, you've got to come back. And the original shaman, the, the Russian Siberian version of, of shamanism, where that word came from, they talked about like crossing a rainbow bridge, but they didn't cross the rainbow bridge and stay over there. They crossed the rainbow bridge. They got information that their community needed and they brought it back. And to me, that's like what we have to remember is, you know, we can, we can leave this vessel for a bit, but we leave to, to gather something, to learn something, to see something, to experience something. And then we bring it back and the bringing it back is as important as the leaving. Yeah. It's again, the integration, the, the being a human being in this lifetime, like this is what's going on. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, to really fill out the body. And I think I, I see this a lot and this is something Lauren and I end up having lots of conversations about because there's so much projection of what spirituality is. You can see it on the interwebs. And it's very much in the upper chakras of this like astral projection that you're talking about and this love and light. And it's very heady and it can also become very like crown chakra expansion energy. But then it's not addressing these deeper feelings in the body. It's not addressing the roots and like the pain and the grief and the mud, you know, that's inside of us. And so I'm curious for you in this path of your life, you know, what that journey has been like through your own mud, through your own depths, and what has helped you kind of rise again? Yeah. You know, I think that the hardest thing for me was learning how to be in a body. I have always felt a bit disconnected and it's been the work of decades, literally, to stop thinking of my body as separate from myself, to, to have like one integrated eye that is all of me and to not, you know, fall into those unconscious languagings of, oh, my body this, my body that, as though it's separate from me, right? And when I look back and, you know, I, I have been looking back with writing this memoir at the way I used to think and the way I used to be, so much of what I was seeking from, from magic, from spirituality, from the mystic was to escape this discomfort of a body. Uh, I was, I was pudgy as a kid. And so, you know, the messages I was receiving about the body I was living in were not very positive. So there was the, you know, the desire to disconnect and, you know, just the way I'm hardwired, I like, I don't have great control of the earth suit. I have never been a person who had the finesse to be an athlete. You know, there's, 
all kinds of like medical labels and things like that that we can put on it. But from a kind of psycho-spiritual point of view, it really fed this this sense of disconnect. Like here I am in this car that like doesn't have a good reverse and like the left-hand turn signal is always broken. And so learning how to be in it and and like be okay in it and be like, okay, this is this is the earth suit I I got. And how are we going to become a we instead of you know, having this outsider sense that like, I don't know, my brain, my soul, something got dumped into this bit of flesh that doesn't work quite the way I want it to. For me, I think that's really been the journey. And what I have found is even in exploring the things that are typically considered like mystical or higher chakra, if I explore those things in a way that is disconnected from my body, from my roots, from my root chakra, then I start to dance on the edge of um, insanity, literally. Like, you know, there is an edge when you're spending so much time out of your body. And I have danced on that edge more than once. So, you know, what I have found for myself is that being rooted and grounded in my body is the beginning of connecting with my intuition, connecting with my personal magic. Like from that place of rootedness, I can do way more. I can manipulate the energies of the universe way better than I can floating around up here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you said many things that I just want to keep and put inside of my meat suit body because (laughs) I think so many of us listening to this podcast can relate. To, oh, my left hand turn signal is broken. I just want to be this amazing musician that uses my fingers magically <laughs> like I see others doing, but I'm just not there yet. <laughs> I don't know if I ever will be. And I'm like, how come it doesn't work like that? And so listening to you, it just gave me permission to be like, oh yeah, I can just love that my body can dance and I can move and I have legs and hands and I can touch my hair and remembering just to be grateful for what I got, the car that I was given, the way that it operates, all the things. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. I used to say that like what I actually wanted to be was like your grandma's old Volvo. I wanted to be the car that like, you know, was so freaking reliable. I like, that's the meat suit I wanted. I wanted the meat suit that, you know, like if you, if something crashed into it, it just kind of stood there like a tank. I'm good. And instead I got some weird ass Italian sports car that is in the shop all the time. (laughs) You know, it's like, really, do we have to be this high maintenance? But there's, you know, once I kind of was like, okay, this is what we got. Then it's like, what's the lesson in what you got? And Mm. This is a choice. This is how we choose to see the world. We can look at the things that come at us as being done to us and have this, oh, woe is me, what hardship. Or we can let the things that come at us, including this thing we're born into, be part of the lesson. What do I get to learn from this? And like for me personally, if I didn't have the weird high maintenance meat suit, I never would have pursued herbalism. I started down that path, which was the doorway into all the other paths for me because Western medicine couldn't help me. 
it just didn't have the the tool set to get that turn signal working. And so I was looking for other modalities and looking for other ways to understand myself, which eventually sent me down the road to herbalism. And from herbalism, I mean, you know, people always say to me, well, how did you get to this, that, and the other from herbalism? Like, how could you not? You know, the plants are affected by the pull of the water table, which is affected by the pull of the moon, which is part of the whole astrological, astronomical system. Like, like how could you not? There, once you begin to understand how it's all connected, then you just keep pulling the threads of connection and, and like pulling in the next thing. So Maya, you're a, a teacher, at least of witch school. I will call you a witch if you accept my <laughs> people call people call me a witch. I I don't call myself a witch. I call myself witchy, but I think some of that is just like my perverse dislike of labels. Yeah, and I I and I see that too in our conversation with like patriarchy and healing. And I and I I actually really hear you, and I'm I'm grateful for you bringing that because I think words have such a profound impact. And you're an author, right? So like this is something you probably think about a lot more than I do, but I do think about this and how these words can be so loaded, especially with like the times and what people are projecting onto these words and also, and also the need for us, right. To like reclaim the words and, and, you know, redefine them if that's something that we feel. So I want to talk about your witchiness and the path you've been on with the witchiness. I'm curious if it's similar to like your, your body story, how herbalism was kind of this, this pathway of taking care of your Italian sports car. And if witchery was, was something similar, if it kind of came to you at a different time in your life and how you kind of, not kind of, you really embraced it in a way, whether you define yourself as that or not, but you also are spreading the message of helping women come into the mystical, into the magical with your witch school. And so maybe you can share a little bit about this journey and where you are now too, if that, if that feels good. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been doing witch camps since 2014 as an online offering. And, you know, one of the things that I have kind of put out there is you don't have to be a witch. You just have to be interested in the archetype of witch. Like what, what is that archetype and what does it have to teach us? And I came to this archetype through the herbalism. You know, it's some people would call it a green witch path. I can't say that I'm much like liked that I was moving towards the archetype of which it wasn't the one I would have chosen in the past two or three years. I've seen an incredible resurgence of the use of the word and a broadening of the meaning of the word. But back when I started using the word, the word witch and running witch camp, it was super uncomfortable for me. And what I was asking people to do was to step into that discomfort. What is this word that has been, you know, used in so many different ways throughout history? How does it reflect upon the feminine and what it means to be a woman and what it means to take power as a woman? And I think there's some difficulty at this crux in our cultural moment with associating witch with woman. And I, I, I feel like I'm thrilled that we are expanding who and what can be a witch. And traditionally, if we go back in history, it was women who were being accused of being witches. There are a couple countries where 
men were accused of witchcraft, but that was pretty rare. This was really a moniker that was put on female healers. And as healing evolved through time, the men formed schools and colleges that became, you know, our current medical system. And the women were pushed outside of the system. And this was from a pretty early time period. Like if you go back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, women were being pushed outside of the system because doctors were associated with the army. They traveled with the army to heal people injured in battle. And so women were not traveling with the army unless they were prostitutes. So there became this division between like the home healing, which was what women would brew up for colds and flus and things like that. And then the battlefield medicine, which was considered the real deal. And so like, that's where that division came from. And so, you know, historically, witches were female people who were working with the herbs and the things that grew around them to heal their family and their villages. That's what they were. The word has been used in multiple different ways and has evolved over time and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that looking back at, at what it was and that kind of, you know, that first, that sense of healing, which we talked about in the beginning, that outsider status, and that it was a gentler medicine. The doctors were, you know, using bone saws and such because people had swords in them. That was a very different story than what the more homegrown medicine was needed for. So anyway, I felt like I wanted to explore this archetype and what this was. And it was kind of difficult because at the same time I was working as a clinical herbalist, I had relationships with medical doctors. I had a relationship with a hospital in Philadelphia. Like they would send me clients that they, you know, not, not all of them, there were a few doctors that they were having trouble finding solution for. So using the word witch was very evocative and it was a challenge to me, to my kind of, you know, I'm going to be a part of our current culture and our current system, and I'm going to get herbalism accepted. And then I'm also going to be dabbling with this word, which I like that kind of friction. That kind of friction for me forces me to get real with myself. It forces me to ask tough questions. It forces me to learn my history and to explore more deeply. So I'm constantly journeying with the word witch. It doesn't stop for me. And for that reason, I'm now thrilled that that's the archetype that kind of picked me. I think that the challenge is important. I think that if it's too easy, then we don't put enough of ourselves into it. We wear it more like a mask instead of actually getting in there and trying on all the bits and pieces, you know, seeing if that pointy hat really fits. I think I went sideways from your question, but there you go. <laughs> it would be not a witch thing to do if you went straight forward. So <laughs> I appreciate it very much. And I, <laughs> and there's so many things you just said that I loved. I'm just, yeah, offering gratitude, especially for the part about if it was easy, if it was easy, what would happen? Because I, I think about that all the time with myself and the past that I choose. And I'm like, when you were in school, you loved your difficult professors, the ones who really challenged you and, you know, 
got you to think and be involved and really like put it on. But when you had an easy class, you wouldn't even go. (laughs) And then you would get a worse grade because you weren't challenged and you didn't care. So that's what life does for those of us that enjoy, you know, the, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the women that are listening to this podcast can relate to this because those women who, who dive into the feminine are not choosing something in this time period. That's easy. It's not easy in this modern culture to dive into yourself. And so this is the work. It's really like trying it on, putting your nice little meat suit inside, (laughs) wiggling around. (laughs) Getting really uncomfortable, (laughs) getting really grumpy and unhappy. Really uncomfortable. (laughs) And then somewhere there's a breakthrough (laughs) at the end of this very difficult tunnel of life. But I appreciate that a lot. So Maybe Maya, you can share about like this this next chapter for you and where you feel like you are right now in your life and and what's coming and maybe what you're grateful for too in this process. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I just I just had a book come out in August called The Night School, and actually I'm going to wave it around because I have it here and it's so pretty. Do it. I've been super lucky to work with publishers who feel like my books should be pretty. I just They're beautiful, by the way. If you have not seen the covers, I encourage you to look them up and take <laughs> in the beauty that they they are. Your illustrators are beautiful. You know, I mean what's like again just with the the challenges, like I thought that if they were too pretty, they wouldn't be taken seriously. I, I push back against the pretty. Um, but with this latest book, like my mom has said this to me before, but in, with this book, I finally am like, I think she's right. I feel like I did the the brain download of like all the things that I know that I can explain in kind of a linear academic sense. Like you can follow me and study this. I think that at this point between the, the earlier books, the herbiary, the bestiary, the crystallary, which are herbs animals, crystals in terms of their medicine. And then the wild wisdom companion is time, like how we work with time. The night school is a history of, of mysticism and like mysticism through the ages. And honestly, part of what I love about that is when you get back to the early stuff, to the ancient philosophers, it's a boys club. And yet there's still so much we can learn. And they were diving into what we now call the feminine. And so I think there's a healing in that too, like a remembrance that the ancient mystery schools, like, like, Yes, there were feminine mysteries and masculine mysteries, but there also was just the mystery and that we can still learn from that. And that to me, anything that puts nuance back into the conversation is is a big plus. And so, you know, going back to the ancient philosophers and reading what they were saying and kind of being like, wow, it's a boys club. And so much of what we're doing now spools out from this. So. You know, the night school, I, I like, I kind of feel like it was a capstone that it's like, okay, I have given my like school teacher prof- professorial thoughts on all these topics now. And I try to write in a way that is super relatable and easy for people. So don't let my like school marm. <laughs> 
metaphor there, you know, get in the way of, of picking up these books. One of my goals is always to communicate. Like if you're not communicating, what's the point? And to communicate in a way that's fun. But it kind of feels like I have this opening now. You know, I, I am finishing up the memoir and asking myself, like, what's next? I am, I'm staying in the author lane. That is a place that is very happy for me. But I'm definitely starting to explore. I actually uh, have a, a contract for a, a book for middle school readers, middle-aged readers, which is like 8 to 12 based on the night school. So I'm super excited about that. I have a couple middle-aged novel-y things that I've been dabbling with. I have a little like tongue-in-cheek inspiration book I'm dabbling with, but we're, we're getting close to the void. So I'm kind of feeling like, you know, probably I'm just going to put it all down for a little while and gestate. Sounds like milk, nourishing and <laughs> silky and nice. So Maya, for our final question, I want to ask you if the Divine Mother were to speak through you a message for our audience what would she have you say? Relax. It's time. Just put it all down and let go for a little while. So it is. Thank you so much, Maya, for being here. For our listeners, you can go ahead and find Maya at mayatoll.com. Be on the lookout for her book, Letting Magic In, which comes out in June. Maya, it was such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Shana. This was fabulous. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Global Sisterhood, you can follow us on Instagram at the Global Sisterhood, or you can tune in to one of our programs. Just go to globalsisterhood.org. It is such a privilege and such an honor to speak with all these amazing women and to continue to speak with you. If you would like to join one of our circles or programs and dive in deeper and have these conversations yourself with us, we would love to invite you in deeper, sister. So just go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more. Okay, talk to you next time.